our journey through 1 Corinthians 53 Sundays ago. We didn't quite make it in a year, um, so not that that was the goal, but 38 sermons we have um, I've preached in, in uh, these 16 chapters here. So it's certainly been an eventful year to walk through uh, a lengthy study like this, and and we've covered a lot of territory in this letter, so I'm not uh, so naive as to think that you remember everything about uh, everything that we've talked about and where we began in this study. So just remember as we kind of close out this letter, remember the background of the letter. And so you can turn to 1 Corinthians 16 if you're not already there. We'll read there in just a moment. But remember, Paul was instrumental in taking, in, was instrumental in the gospel taking root in the city of Corinth and the, and the church beginning there. And so he spent... 18 months there in Corinth, instructing and equipping uh, this young church plant. Then he moved on, and he left behind a healthy, growing church body and that had some solid leaders in it. But within just a few short years, uh, Paul hears of all kinds of problems in the church at Corinth. The wheels just seem to be coming off of this young church. And so, so he writes them this letter that we've been looking at together, and we've seen throughout uh, this letter that he takes up these different issues. It's conflict, it's pride, it's uh, lawsuits, sexual sin, marriage and singleness, uh, food, idolatry, theological confusion, all these, all these different issues that they've asked him about or, or he reports that he's heard about these problems in these churches. And so he takes all of these issues and he doesn't just say, here, let me, let me give you some new rules for handling these things. It's not what he does. No, he, he reframes everything, all of these issues, in light of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see them through that context, to, to think about everything in life and the church in particular through the lens of the gospel. That's what we've seen throughout this study. And so it was, a, it was originally intended, as you know, not to be studied over a year. It was intended to be first read aloud in a church gathering in one sitting like like, like this. And so, again, we spent the whole year going through it, so we've, we've forgotten much of what Paul said in this, earlier in the letter. I would just say it would be a helpful exercise to take some time to read through this whole letter in one sitting. Uh, maybe even better, just to listen to it. There are all kinds of apps and Bible apps, and you can just hear it. It would take about 40, 45 minutes to, to do that. But it's interesting to see how... how um, a Bible book strikes you before we study it in this way and then read it again and, and how it, how after we've spent time slowly working through it, it kind of strikes us. And so I think it will be really helpful and it will be really encouraging to you to read it again after we've spent so much time working through it. So in this final chapter, though, Paul Paul's gathering together a number of different matters that he wants to mention before he puts the pen down and sends this letter. So we don't we don't see in chapter 16, if you've already read it, uh, this tight, dense, uh, you know, logical development that we've seen in these other chapters in this letter. No, it's almost like uh, this letter, and then there's this string of PSs at the end, and oh, and this, and oh, yeah, and this, and, and this. That's kind of how it feels. And so, but not surprisingly, even, even um, these closing kind of ordinary pieces of advice and these different greetings that he's that we find in chapter 16, they're oozing theology and gospel. And we'll draw some of that out together. So, so, so we come into chapter 16, and, we, and again, we're right out, out of chapter 15 where we've spent the last, I think, five weeks or something. 
And, and it can kind of seem like a letdown when you get into chapter 16. Like, could he not have just ended at chapter 15? Um, because he's just, we've been, he's led us to this great mountain top uh, of uh, this one of the greatest mountain peaks of New Testament theology and doxology. And so we've been in the heights. We've been in the heavenly places. And so he's been fixing our attention on resurrection hope. And we've seen that together. And it's culminated in this cry of triumph. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And we're like, just end it. Just walk away. But then the next word, so he's just soaring. And then the next stroke of pen, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. And we're like, oh, it, just, it feels abrupt, like a hard gear change there. So Paul's, Paul's heart and his head may be just soaring in the heights, but his, his feet are firmly planted on the earth. And so he can see and revel in and glory in these wonderful, glorious realities of the resurrection and our future hope. And yet at the same time, he can deal with the ordinary stuff of church life. Uh, that's, that's what we see. And, and that's, as the more I've thought about it this week, that is a good way to end. Because the reality is, we don't live in the glories yet to come, do we? We, we, we live in the mundane of here and now. We live in setting up chairs and dealing with projectors that malfunction and, and, and Zoom calls and just the, the stuff of normal life in a church. That's where we're at. And so we need help to see how the glory that awaits us, it, it ought to affect us in the day-to-day -day realities of life together in the church. And that's what chapter 16 helps us. It's about living the Christian life together in the real world, in light of things to come, in the, in the fellowship of the local church. So let's read chapter 16 there, so follow along as I, I read now. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my, way, on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the, older bro with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, 
You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, a question for you. How many things do you have in your life that fall into the category of it's just better to buy a new one rather than to try and fix the old one? Um, and the second question is that list of things getting shorter or longer for you? Right, someone can answer that one. Is it longer? Yes, I think that's true for most, if not all of us here. Uh, years ago, you know, I'm starting to sound like an old person. Uh, when I was a young person, uh, you, know, you know, there were more things that were repaired. Um, appliances and electronics even and tools, that kind of stuff. For, for instance, I remember TV shops, repair shops, were very common. I mean, like every town had at least one, or sometimes a TV and VCR shop or something like that. And, and so if your television stopped working, you, sometimes you could fix it yourself, you could replace a tube, or you took it to, to the repair shop and, and they fixed it. But you didn't just throw it away and buy a new one at Walmart, you know, later that day. Um, but that's not the case anymore. Um, for most of us, if a TV stops working, it just doesn't make any sense to find a repairman if you can and to, to have it repaired because it's probably, the repair is probably as expensive as the new TV. Um, and, and you just go on Amazon and click buy and you know, two days later, voila, it shows up and you got a TV that's working, no big deal. And so I'd be surprised, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but if there were too many people in here whose primary television is older than maybe 10 years, that's probably not common for most of us. We, we live in a throwaway society. Um, we have fewer and fewer things in life that are really worth fixing, worth, worth saving. And the corollary to that is whatever items fit in the category of repair, don't replace, those things are increasingly precious and valuable to us because there's so few of them. Um, so, so hold that thought. And then I do think, uh, so Fayette County, if you live in us or if you're visiting, just, just fill you in we celebrated our bicentennial this weekend, 200 years as a county. And there were all kinds of festivities around the county uh, yesterday celebrating and marking the occasion. So the, the, the centerpiece, the architectural centerpiece of Fayette County is our, is our simple but very beautiful courthouse. And something we're probably all very proud of and thankful for and we drive by. The courthouse was built in 1825 and it cost $3,399. Uh, the, the clock tower and the clock itself were added decades later. 
Um, it was remodeled in 1965, uh, like a thorough remodeling at a cost of $70,000. It was remodeled again in 1982. Then it was burned by arson, someone trying to destroy evidence in the courthouse. And it was restored again. It's one of the oldest courthouse buildings in the state of Georgia. And before the new, uh, a new judicial complex was built in the 80s, it was the uh, oldest Georgia courthouse that was in continuous use as a courthouse. Um, it continues to be maintained well today. Uh, I remember when they put a new roof on it uh, a few years ago, that slate roof. I can't imagine how much that itself cost, but it, it houses the, the development authority, and there's a little gift shop and welcome center in, in there if you haven't been. It's, it's very nice. Um, but it's, it's expensive to maintain an old building like that. I don't really have those figures, but I can imagine. There, there, are no, there have no doubt been hard decisions that county officials have made throughout the years um, to, to determine to keep going. And so is, is it worth making the needed repairs to this old building, um, doing the expensive maintenance, bringing it up to code, just all that's involved in that when you're trying to use it today? Is it worth the sacrifice of time and money should it just be torn down and replaced with something, something new? Um, thankfully, at least from my perspective, um, there were some who saw the value of that old building. And, and, and the courthouse is now, I think, one of the most picturesque spots in, in this community, in our community. It looks beautiful. You sit up on the roof at Twisted Taco on Taco Tuesday, and you look out at night, and that thing's lit up, and it, it's beautiful. It's a great, it's a great sight. And and I think most of us would agree the building was worth saving, worth fixing, worth the investment, worth the sacrifices, because some things just are. And so here's my question. So those TV, courthouse, in general, is the church of Jesus Christ like that courthouse to us? In particular, is this church like that to you, to us, to me? All right, so the church of Corinth, it is, we know, well-documented, their faults are well-documented. It was riddled with all kinds of problems, glaring faults. They had divided up into these different factions, you remember, based upon, you know, these, their preferred preachers and, and leaders of the church. They had, they were generally carnal believers who, who wanted to be fed milk when Paul says you need to be fed meat. They showed little regard for the purity of the church. They had this incestuous man in their midst and, and they refused to remove him from the, from the fellowship and actually boasted in the fact that they tolerated this. They were, they were taking one another to court and suing one another. They were using their bodies in all kinds of ungodly ways and filled with all kinds of sexual immorality. They didn't know how to handle food that was being offered to idols. They, their views of sex and marriage were all kinds, were corrupted in all kinds of ways. They weren't valuing single people in their church. They were abusing the Lord's table while they were marginalizing the poor at, the, at communion. And at the other time, they were getting drunk and, and, and being gluttonous. They, their understanding of an attitude towards spiritual gifts was, was um, way off, and it caused all kinds of problems in the church. Some of them were denying the resurrection there's a lot of crazy stuff that we've seen in this letter over the last year that's happening at the church in Corinth. So we'd say, surely, Paul, you're just ready to wash your hands of them. Just be done with them. Start over, right? I mean, it's easier to, to give birth than to raise the dead. That's those saying. So what, 
What's the final verdict on this messy and messed up church? What about our messy church? We have our faults. We have our problems. Is it like one of today's TV sets? If it stops working, just go get a new one. Or is it like our county courthouse? Is it, is it worth saving? Is it worth fixing? Is it worth investing in? Is it worth sacrificing for? I hope that that's really not a dilemma in your mind. The church of Jesus Christ, it's worth fighting for. It's, it's, it's even, even with all of its challenges and all of its weaknesses, brothers and sisters. And so this morning, we're, we're not going to work consecutively through chapter 16, through all of the PSs here. And uh, we're, like we've done through all the other 15 chapters, work verse by verse consecutively. Instead, I think what's most helpful here, and so there's a lot of juicy stuff, and we're just going to kind of, we're going to kind of see it at a high elevation. So we're going to just kind of see a bird's eye view of this chapter, a panoramic view of the whole chapter. And, and, and what we're going to see, though, in it is a picture of a church that's worth sacrificing for. I, I think that's the image. And so to give us this broad view, we're going, to, we're going to do so kind of by using these four sets of balancing realities. There are these realities which seem contradictory at first, but they are certainly not. And so the first one is this, is we see in the church here, this church that's worth sacrificing for. It's international, but inter interdependent. International, but interdependent. And so not that many years before this letter was written, the church was just a little group of, of Jews in this dusty province at the edge of the Roman Empire. And that's the reality. It was just this little, almost nationalistic sect. But as we can see now, 20, 30, 35 years later in the time of the, this letter, the church has grown and developed into this, this truly international body. And so in chapter 16, you may not see these things on a map in your mind, but as we read through this, there are five different provinces of the Roman Empire that are mentioned. You have Galatia in verse 1, Judea in verse 3, Macedonia in verse 5. Achaia in verse 15, Asia, verse 19. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, yes, all these provinces are in the Roman Empire, but there are significant differences between these provinces. Um, it wasn't just all the same. Differences in ethnicity, differences in culture, differences in civilization and history and traditions and all these things. We have East and West. We have... Greek and Roman, we have barbarian and Jew and Gentile. Very vast differences. Yet in each of these very different places, what do we find? The church is alive and is active and is growing. The gospel has taken root and is spreading and, and it's penetrating and it's working and it's making a difference in these places. In less than a generation, basically, the the the... <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in less than a generation, this tiny group of Christ-believing Jews has become an, an international body. And yet, in such a fast-spreading church like we find in Scripture, this, this, this international group, we can imagine there'd be a lot of fragmentation. Not, not much unity. And there certainly was, that was the case in particular congregations like the church in Corinth within that congregation but the church at large wasn't just international. 
it was interdependent. International, but interdependent. And so we see this in a couple of ways here in this chapter. One is money. And so you see it, the first four chapter, verses of this chapter, they deal with this, this collection that Paul was going around and, and taking up to send to Jews in Jerusalem, people they've never met, people they do not know and will probably never see face to face. He's going around to these Gentile, primarily Gentile churches and collect, taking up this collection. He wants these churches to give generously to these people, their brothers and sisters they've never seen. Because the Christians in Jerusalem, they're suffering. And, and, they, and these churches should care. They're, they were in a time of severe famine, we know. They, they were experiencing growing opposition. They, had, they were considered apostates from, uh, from Judaism. They were openly persecuted there. They, they were not entitled to uh, you know, help from the synagogue and from the Sanhedrin like their Jewish, um, uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. They, they, many of them were disowned by their families, so there was no help coming from from bloodlines, and so they were cut off. They were in dire need, and Paul's concerned for his brothers and sisters there in the churches. He's deeply committed to helping them. Maybe in part because not long ago, he was one of the chief persecutors of these believers, and, and yet the Lord arrested him and, on that road and, and marvelously saved him and changed him, and so, so he's, he's burdened for them. And so, But Paul saw this, Collection, not just as a way to help these people in need, but he also saw this as a way to express Christian unity and solidarity. We know this from Acts. This was the whole, a big part of the third missionary journey that he made. And so, because the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem in particular, they were very suspicious of these new believers in these Gentile areas, these Gentiles who were new to the worship of the God of Israel, these these Gentiles who didn't keep the law of Moses, they didn't observe the food laws of, of Israel, they, there was a certain degree of almost hostility towards these Gentile converts. And certainly there was caution, there was, there was wariness, uneasiness, suspicion, and so on the part of these Jewish believers. So Paul knew that these, when these gifts started flooding in from, from the Gentile world, he'd be able to say to these very suspicious, conservative Jewish Christians, hey, listen, these gifts, they're from brothers and sisters in Ephesus and Rome and Corinth. They love you. They care about you. They're making sacrifices to help you. I mean, an offering like this, it, it could heal any rift that was still there between these Jew and, Jewish and Gentile Christians and create a sense of oneness and unity in a way that mere words couldn't. And so, I'm not going to take time to develop this, and I know we could do a message on giving and all of that, but I just notice the quiet, practical, matter-of-fact way that this is done. Um, so there, there, there are no, like, stirring emotional appeals here. There's no thermometer on the wall or anything like that or, you know, um, concerts or yard sales. It's no high-pressure methods or gimmicks or anything like that. He just says on the first day of the week, when you meet on the Lord's Day as a church, Set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, proportionately, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Very simple, very low-key. There's a need. Let's plan to meet it. And I think that's helpful. But, but you see this interdependence, and you see it in money, and this, another way you see it is in people. This international body, 
fast-growing, spreading church, and yet there's this interdependence. See the money, see the people. In this chapter, we see Paul in Macedonia, then in Corinth, then in Ephesus. He's moving around. We see Timothy going to Corinth, then coming back to Paul in Ephesus. We see Apollos, who's strongly urged by Paul to go and visit Corinth. But Apollos says, isn't willing to go at the time. Now, there's a sermon there, um, and I'm tempted to preach it, but maybe some other day. But it, it, it seems to show, I think at least we could say this, it, it seems to show some grace-produced humility in both Paul and Apollos here. Remember, again, we're going back into where we began in this, in this letter, but there were people in Corinth, they had no time for Paul. They didn't like him. They didn't think he was that great of a preacher. They were not impressed by Paul. Apollos was their guy. He was the man in Corinth. They, they had high esteem for him. And so they, they, they probably pleaded with Paul, would you send Apollos back to us when they wrote to him? And, and so you can imagine how easy it would have been for Paulus to be kind of jealous, a little bit huffy, and, 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 and try to keep Apollos away from Corinth to, to, to kind of safeguard his own position that he had there. But, by, but God's grace was at work in Paul. So Paul's strongly urging Apollos, why don't you go? Go to them. Minister there. Go, go, go open up the gospel for them again. They love you. Go. And yet God's grace was at work in Apollos too. I think that's what this is pointing to. It would have been easy for Apollos to just jump at that opportunity and say, well, here's my chance. Carve out my niche. Build my fan base. And, and these people love me. And I can, I can claim this, but Paul says, no, I, I I don't think it's appropriate to go right now. I'll go later. All right, that's my mini-sermon. Okay, I said I wasn't going to do it. Then you get in verse 17 and 18. We see these three men coming to Ephesus from Corinth. In verse 19, we see this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and, and they're at Ephesus, and they've moved there from Corinth. So you see all this movement, and the picture you get is this whole host of people moving around from place to place, this steady interchange of personnel. And they see themselves all part of this one church committed to this common mission, helping the cause of Christ wherever they are. It doesn't matter whether they're in Galatia or Macedonia or whether they're in Jerusalem or Corinth or Rome. It, it doesn't matter. It's all one church, one, one interdependent, international body, people of God. If they have to move, it's fine. And many do move. Now, granted... We don't read about these. Most people are staying put. It's people who live there, and this is their church, and they're there and serving like most of us. But there is this, there is this interdependence among the churches. All are strengthening the church wherever they are. And if that means moving, so be it. So this is widespread international church, but it's also interdependent. They're held together in this loving unity by giving, by, by people, and, and people ministering to and supporting one another. I would just say, friends, we, we need both emphases today, don't we? We need both. The church today is more international than it's ever been um, in, in its history. And so communication is easier than ever before. We have these things called airplanes now. We are talking about this in our elder prayer time. Don't ask me why. But we are talking about it was good catching up with a pilot friend and contrails going all over the sky this morning. And we, we have this ability to travel and to, and to go all these places in the world. We have all this technology and we can video chat with people around the world and there are radio waves and signals that are going into very difficult to reach places and the gospel is going out and so 
So we, we, we need to keep our sphere of, of interest wide and our prayer wide. We, we, we need to realize that the church is in all the earth, everywhere the gospel is gone. And, and, and so it's not just Baraka Bible Church. It's not just churches that are just like ours that check all of our boxes. It's not just Western churches with similar traditions to us. It's not just the United States church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of the world. It's in all nations and people groups where the gospel is gone. And so, and more than just knowing that, acknowledging that, we need, we need mutual help and interchange. We need interdependence. But that I don't, I don't just mean, I know we can sometimes, this is one of our Western tendencies, we can say, they need us. We have everything and they need it. I don't mean that. I mean, we, yes, we have resources and we should share them willingly. A big part of that is finances. But we need them too. We need their personnel. We need their perspective. And so I have not had a lot of exposure um, to the worldwide church. It's been rather limited. But by God's grace, he's allowed me to see some of this richness and beauty and, 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 and diversity, this interdependence. And so we've been able to travel a few places and visit other churches in other countries and meeting. And I met pastors and believers from other parts of the world and other parts of our own nation and, 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 um, and other denominations and traditions. And, and so it's, it's, it's widened my understanding of my sympathy with the church of Christ in, in many places. And I, I think that's important for all of us to, to get that. Here we see in chapter 16, I think this great, broad, generous view of the church. Now, again, we're going to talk about this is not just orthodoxy doesn't matter, but I'm talking about the true gospel where the gospel has taken root and is, is growing. There is, there is this, this beauty of that. And the church is being held together, international but interdependent. These congregations, they certainly were independent in many senses, like all churches are today, but, but it was not a radical independence. They were sharing and bearing the burdens with other churches, sharing money, sharing people, and such should we. So that's the first thing. Um, there's these inter, inter, international but inter, inter, interdependent, excuse me. Second, balancing realities that we see here. We see flexibility and yet firmness. Flexible but firm. And so there's flexibility. Particularly we see this in the area of, of people's plans and ideas and ministries. And so it's interesting to read Paul, this great apostle who gives out instructions and all the time, as we're going to see he does here in this section. But what does he say about this collection? He says, verse 4, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I don't know. He's saying, I don't know if, if I'll go to Jerusalem or not. I'm not sure. I'll have to see. I'll have to, I'll have to get advice. I'll have to think about this. Verse 6, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. He doesn't know. He's not sure. The Lord hasn't give him some, given him some special word of revelation on this matter. Verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Paul doesn't know any more than you or I know on these kinds of decisions. He, he doesn't know what God's will will be. He, he would like to spend time with them, but he's not sure how much time we'll have or if we'll be able to make it. There's unknowns. Verse 12, Apollos will come when he has opportunity. Kind of the same with Timothy. I, I don't know when that will be. There's great 
There's great flexibility here. Plans are made. Logistics are worked out. But nothing is, is so settled. We, Paul says, we'll have to see what happens. We'll, and, and I just say, I find, I find this kind of vagueness and uncertainty to be tremendously reassuring. I'm particularly thinking back over the last 15 months. The, the, the plans that we, we thought were going to uh, come to pass in, in 2020, for instance. And this is, this, the Lord has been gracious. This is one of the things I, I've, I've talked with many of you and about the, you know, the last year or more. And it's kind of, what the, what's the Lord teaching? This is one of those things. We, we hold these things a little looser than we did. Maybe we, we thought we were in more control than we, we had more control than we did. And, and so, Paul, there's this, this flexibility. What, is it, what I mean by flexibility? I just mean a humble, a humble trust in God's providence. Humbly trusting that God, God's, it doesn't make me don't plan. It doesn't mean we don't, you know, work out details. But we just hold those things loosely. And yet at the same time, so there's that. There's flexibility here. At the same time, there's this tremendous firmness in this, in this portion. There are these very clear, crisp uh, authoritative apostolic commands here. There are commands that are to be obeyed without hesitation, without arguing, without questioning. He says in verse 1, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. In verse 13, we have this string of them. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. We'll come back to those. Verse 16, submit to such as these. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So here's a man who's extremely dogmatic, very definite, very certain and strong and authoritative with regard to God's revealed will, his word. He won't budge an inch. He's unbending. He's firm. But with regard to his own plans and his own ideas and his own schemes, he's very flexible and accommodating. That's a, that's a needed balance for the church, isn't it? Um, as a church, we, we have to know when to be flexible and when to be firm. It's not always easy, though, to get that balance right. And I would say it's impossible for us to always get it right in, in, in a, any kind of perfect way. We, we don't. We, we never, it never happens. Some churches are very good at being firm. You know, not an inch. That's their, that's their motto, whether it's official and emblazoned on the wall or not. They, they will not change. They will not move. They are set in concrete. And, and they don't know when to be flexible. I'm not an architect and, and, or anything like that, but I, I just do a little bit of construction stuff just around the house and stuff. But I do understand any structure you build, whether it's a tree house or a skyscraper, it has to have some degree of flexibility to it. You have to build that in. It's got to be able to move and expand. If something's too rigid, too unbending, then when the wind blows hard or when the earth begins to quake or something like that, it, it, it won't be able to move at all. And if it's too rigid and unbending, it will actually break. It's got to be able to move. Just nod if you're one of my architect friends in here. You know, you, um, there, there needs to be firmness, but there has to be flexibility. And so it is with, with the churches. But then other churches are kind of like a plate of jello. They, they, they're totally flexible, flexible about everything. And, and so they're flexible about doctrine, and they're flexible about morality, and they're flexible about the gospel. Everything's up for grabs. 
changes from year to year, from decade to decade, from kind of trend to trend. They stand for nothing. You, you don't know where they are on anything. And I think we have a good illustration in the Apostle Paul here in this 16th chapter. So open-minded, so open-handed with his own plans, so ready to a change, so ready to change, to adapt, to accommodate circumstances, saying, I'm not sure what's going to happen. We'll just have to see how the Lord leads. Yet on the other hand, he's absolutely solid and determined that the word of God, the gospel, it's going, it has to be clung to and it has to be proclaimed. That flexibility and firmness. Friends, this, it's important that we, we learn what, what must never change and what we must never abandon. And yet at the same time, not take ourselves too seriously in our plans. To be able to sit lightly on our own plans and our own ways of doing things and our own ideas and our own schemes and our own opinions about different things. These all, these all may need to change in light of circumstances. Firm but flexible. Third, balancing reality here in chapter 16. Opportunities but opposition. Opportunities but opposition. Verse 8, look there with me. So he plans, he would love to come see them, but he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Then he gives two supporting reasons why that's, that's his plan. Verse 9, for a, a wide door for effective work is open to me. And, number two, there are many adversaries. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure of the logic. Let's look at these. We have these opportunities. This wide door for effective work has been opened to me. Now Paul spent... Two and a half years in Ephesus. I know I was talking with Eric. I know you students have been uh, walking through Acts together. And you've been looking at this period of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And so it was the longest known period of fixed ministry in one location that's recorded for us in the New Testament. And it was a period of wonderful fruitfulness um, and, and gospel progress. So when you get into Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we're told that while Paul was there... All the residents, this is what the text says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's incredible. And so there seems to have been this great outpouring of gospel fruit there. And believers went out from Ephesus preaching the cross into, into that region. And so there are probably the churches at Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis were, were daughter churches of the church in Ephesus. As these preachers went out up in those those river valleys coming, coming out of that, of, of Ephesus and going up into these places and preaching Christ and believers are saved and churches are started. And, and so this whole province of Asia is being evangelized. Tremendous opportunities. We're told in Acts 19.11, the very next verse, what, that God did, quote, extraordinary miracles through Paul there. Verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, the whole city's changed. It's this amazingly fruitful time of service. God opened this door, this, this incredible opportunity in Ephesus. And Paul, Paul saw that. Let me just, a quick application for us. God must open the door. And, and it, what that means for us is we need to be crying out for the Lord to work mightily, mightily, and, and, and to open a door for his word right here and around the world. I mean, South Metro Atlanta, where we live and 
and to the uttermost parts. We've, he's got to open the, he's got to do the work. And so salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his work. We are, we are in his hands. But we see this wonderful, God's opened this door for effective service in, in, in Ephesus. Opportunities. And yet, at the same time, it's a period of opposition. You just, just read through Acts chapter 19 this afternoon, and it's a, it's a, it'd be a great, it would be a great benefit to your soul to just see both of these come together. But he was opposed there by these exorcists who tried to distort, tried to discredit his, his preaching work. He, he was opposed by the merchants and tradesmen viciously, and this riot broke out. Uh, because they're losing money because of his preaching the gospel. People aren't buying the little pagan trinkets anymore. He, he's opposed by Jews who've tried to have him killed there. In 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he says, I, I, we saw this a few weeks ago, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, he may be speaking literally, but more probably he's referring to, to the people that were so angry, so filled with such hatred and cruelty. They were just wickedly, oppressing and opposing him and, and they're like wild animals. And so there's, you go to 2 Corinthians and there's a very touching comment at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, chapter one, verse eight. And, and, he, and Paul opens his heart just for a moment. He says, listen to what he says. He's describing this time. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You talk about stress. You talk about tension. Talk about opposition. The Apostle Paul, he knew it all. He's saying, we were under such pressure, it was killing us. We couldn't cope with it. We, the job is going to kill us. And so the interesting thing, though, come back to Verse, uh, to ch chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, is what does he do? He uses both of these realities as reasons for staying in Ephesus. Opportunities and opposition. So he says, I'm going to stay first because there's this wide door that's open for me. Secondly, because there are many who oppose me. Now we would probably think that second reason is a good reason. I think the Lord's leading me elsewhere in ministry right now. Um, I think it's time to go. In spite of the fact there seems to be this open door of opportunity, I'm going to get out because there are many adversaries. That's probably how we would reason. But Paul says, no. That's, that's also a reason for staying. The fact that there are enemies shows that God is doing something. His spirit is working. Whenever there's just spiritual death, the there's no activities from the enemies of the gospel. But whenever the enemies of the gospel are all worked up, that's generally a sign that God's up to something. So opportunities and opposition. Opposition doesn't mean we're necessarily out of the will of God. Now, does God discipline his own and create difficulty? Sure, he, he allows that. But it could mean the opposite. It may mean that we're right where he's meant us to be and to do this work at this time. If our church is alive and growing, we should always expect both. It's unlikely that the Lord will give us opportunities without, at the same time, the devil stirring up great opposition. 
opportunities and opposition. Fourth and finally, and I'll have to be brief here, resources but responsibilities. Resources but responsibilities. Now, what, what resources did the church at Corinth have? Didn't really have much money. I mean, they're taking up a collection, but it's not like they're doing really well. They have very little organization, as we've well seen. Didn't have public visibility. It didn't have, uh, you know, a uh, media platform or something like that. But it had the greatest resources of all. I mean, it had resources that everybody had the word of God, spirit of God. But in particular, as he highlights here, the people of God. I mean, that, that's the greatest visible resource for so people. That's what they had. It, listen, no church is poor that has Christian people. People that are, as we've seen in this letter, supernaturally redeemed and gifted by the Spirit and empowered to, to use those gifts in building up the church and, and furthering the gospel. These are incredible resources. And every name you see in this chapter, these are resources. And so we've noticed many of these people already, but notice this beautiful reference again in verse 15. You, you know that in the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They've devoted themselves to this. The idea of that is they, they've committed themselves completely to it. They've directed their whole lives to the service of the saints. That's what's, that's what's compelling them. That's what's moving them. Where the needs of the saints go, that's where we go. When it goes over here, that's where we go. That's what, that's what that word means. Here is the, here's the true strength of any church. Men and women and young people who will devote themselves to serving the saints. It's, the, it's also the mark of authentic leadership in the church. Elders and deacons and ministry leaders, listen to this. This is, this is what ought to define us. Verse 16, he says, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Every, every laborer there, it's very specific. It's one who, who toils and works to the point of exhaustion. This ought to characterize our leadership. Here were the real resources in the church. It's people. And as I've been thinking about this this week and and observing uh, and interacting with many of you in different settings this week. And um, I have been very aware of the resources we have as a congregation. I realize there are things we don't have, and those my mind can kind of zero in. My cynicism can kind of pop up, my pessimism. Oh, I wish we had this. I wish we had this. We don't have this. We don't have what that church had. But we have resources. I don't mean like, you know, to be used as, as but we have God's blessings and right here, people working in hidden ways throughout the week. I know many of you have been serving and blessing and helping one another in ways that most people have no idea. Notes of encouragement, prayers, meals that are prepared, conversations and, and to, to sit and talk and to listen to somebody and help somebody. People that are here early this morning getting things ready to church. I'm looking around and these people that are, cars are streaming in here and, and people showing up to help. They have, People that are serving right now in all kinds of capacities in our nursery and preschool ministry. And some are very obvious, some are behind the scenes, but there's stuff happening. And so here, here's the resource. Here's, here's the energy and power and, to the witness of the church. The New Testament church had many, many people. We haven't talked in detail about Aquila and Priscilla. It's a, again, Howard and I were talking about this yesterday. It's this beautiful image of this married couple and serving and moving frequently and just 
however the Lord wants to use them. They're, they're open, they're available, they're all in as a married couple. And you, Timothy, and same way, this young man who's, who's got fervor, and, 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 and he goes to, he's, you just see the way he writes to the church at Corinth, like, don't crush this guy. Because he was, he was kind of get this picture, he's a little bit timid as a young man, and, and the Corinthians were brutal. He's saying, you better be nice to this kid when he comes to you, and you, you, you deal, treat him with respect. But you, you have all these people, you have these resources of people. The church is rich in people. As God's spirit is equipped and gifted and empowered people. But as well as enjoying the benefit of those resources, we see here every member of the church has these solemn responsibilities. And so I, I just kind of, I'm just, in the interest of time, I can only read these and make a few little comments. But verse 13 again. See these, these responsibilities. Be watchful. Be alert, be, be awake, be on guard. Temptation is real. The enemy is real. The flesh is weak. Stay alert. Stand firm in the faith. Don't, don't uh, allow, this is the, the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. Don't allow yourselves to be blown around by strange ideas. We talked about this last week. Don't, don't be taken in by false teaching. This is something the Corinthian Christians were really struggling with. Act like men. He's writing to men and women, and he says, act like men. And what he's saying, be men and women of courage. Conviction. Don't be childish. Don't be immature. Be, be strong. Be strong. Be strong morally, intellectually, against the pressures of the world. And so he, he says these, these string of commands, and he balances these hard qualities with these firm qualities, and he says, let all that you do be done in love. Let love animate your every action. All that we do, even if it involves this sort of spiritual combat, and he's using these military metaphors and these strong languages, that language, he says, all that we do is to be done in love. What that means is we're not, we're not just to be pound our chest and be bold and say things that nobody likes to hear and, and just be kind of a, a, a burr in everybody's saddle. And he said, no, because that, that's self-interest. You're doing that to make a show. You're doing that to, because you're, you're, you want something that you're not getting. He's saying, no, act in love. We're, to, we're not to act in our own interests even when we're standing firm and acting like men. Love is to be the characteristic mark of everything we do, everything we say. How often... We all struggle with this, isn't it? To, to miss this mark. May we be men and women distinguished by, known by our love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. And notice all these verbs, we've talked, they're a present imperatives, meaning this is, these aren't momentary actions. Have this moment of courage, this moment of love. These are continuous responsibilities of every one of us. All of us who are resources, we have these responsibilities. I know it's easy to criticize the church. And, and this pastor is tempted to do that as well. And even as the pastor, senior pastor of the church, this undefined, nebulous, uh, mysterious them, they, that's the church. Listen, we are the resources. We have responsibilities. Are we, are we playing our part? Are we fulfilling our responsibilities in the church? All right, then we conclude. Verse 21 to 24. He, he ends with a few lines in his own handwriting. So most of the letter he's dictated through a scribe, which was very common. 
for Paul and others to do at the time. But in verse 21, he takes the pen himself, you notice, and he writes these last few lines in his own writing. So he says, verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And then he says, verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That seems abrupt. He's probably referring to those in the church who in the, in the name of Christ, they're, they're dividing the church, they're tearing the church apart. He, he might be referring to those who are persecuting the church from the outside. It may be both. But then this curse, though, it's immediately followed by this, this expression. It's in Aramaic. You've probably heard the, the English transliterate, Maranatha. So this isn't, a, this isn't a Greek word. This is an Aramaic word. This isn't how they spoke. So this is, this is clearly, it's marked as this distinctly Christian benediction that was used in the church at the time. It's kind of a password for the early church, like amen or hallelujah. This is a word that they would speak, even though it's not their tongue. This was, and, and, and what it's saying is, our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. This was their longing. This is to be our longing. From the very, from the very beginning, Christians have longed for our Lord Jesus to return. He says, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, grace. Keep coming back to grace. Grace is our perennial need. This is what they needed. And then there's this beautiful ending in verse 24. Oh, these Corinthians who I suspect gave him stomach ulcers <laughs> and gave, caused many sleepless nights for Paul, probably had high blood pressure because of these Corinthians. They, they were difficult, awkward people. They, they had many, many faults. They were people who made life extremely hard for Paul, caused all kinds of anxiety for him. But how does he end? Verse 24, my love be with you, what? All. All of you. Every single one of you. I love you. No exceptions. Listen, Paul did not see the church like a broken down television that was to be discarded. It was worth fixing. It was worth giving his life for. He loved the church with all her faults. And then the best manuscripts, they don't actually have the closing word that's in some of your translations. If you're using the ESV, it ends with amen. That's not in the earliest manuscripts. The letter should end. The very last words that Paul probably wrote is this fitting summary of the whole letter. My love be with you all. Here's that phrase, in Christ Jesus. And then he ends. The letter concludes on the same word that the letter began. Paul wrote to the Corinthians who are called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. And he concludes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He wants this, he wants Jesus to be the last thing they hear from him. Christ is all we need. Everything we have, we have in Christ Jesus. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for these almost incidental snapshots of the early church here we have in this last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Lord, that in these directions and these little miscellaneous instructions and these prayers and commands and pieces of advice as Paul shares his future hopes and plans with 
these people as he remembers different instructions he wants to give them. We, we thank you that even here as well as in the more tightly reasoned passages in this letter, we can see vividly the, the quality of life in the church then and, and how similar it is to our own. Help us to consider these different balances and as we do see a, a church worth worth sacrificing for, worth giving our lives for. Help us to see in these balances where our own lives or us as a congregation, we may tend towards one extreme or another and where we need to come back into the balance of Scripture. And Lord, we thank you that the, the apostle, your servant, can close by expressing love to all, to all in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are inadequate and we are imperfect servants of yours, yet as long as we are in Christ, we are loved. For Jesus, you have covered our sins. You've clothed us with your perfect purity. And so together, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for this book and for the time we've spent studying it together over the last year. May it, by the power of your Holy Spirit, continue to bear much fruit in our lives and in our church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.